0: Thunder, Episode 2, Over the Threshold. I open the door to the Wells Fargo Bank in southeast Portland on a sunny April afternoon in 1997. Stepping inside, I draw the loaded browning 9mm from the holster in the small of my back. I point the barrel towards the ceiling and rack the slide a chamber around for dramatic effect. I want them to know right away that I'm armed. I mentally start a clock in my head with two minutes on it. I figure the cops will respond in three to five minutes. My face is covered with a nylon stocking, underneath a blonde wig and a baseball cap. I shout, this is a robbery, everybody get on the fucking floor now! I'm being purposely aggressive. This is the point of no return. Up until the door of the bank, I could have walked away, gone home and put everything away, made lunch, gone to work at the bakery, and seen my fiancé the next day. Going over the threshold of the bank and initiating this action means setting larger events in motion with real consequences. To get here takes will, doing a thing you are conditioned against. Will is definitely a theme that I'll return to in this season. Despair played a role as well. I couldn't, at the time, identify a path to affect change in society, let alone find peace in my own mind. My drug dependency didn't help Uh, I had used marijuana for years as an inadequate substitute for adult coping skills. As I do this, I am assessing how many people are in the bank, and it is more than I'd hoped for, maybe 12 that I can see between bank staff and customers. Some of the people start to go prone on the floor. An old man with a cane complains loudly that if he lies down on the floor, that he won't be able to get back up. A guy standing next to him takes his elbow and encourages him to comply. As an armed robber, I wanted people on the ground before they could start strategizing a takedown. Shooting civilians is a serious failure in my mind. I want them on the ground because it's a lot harder to decide to rush someone or leap up in panic after you've already complied or are now on the floor. When I cased the bank a few weeks prior, I had five requirements. One, no security guards. Two, no bulletproof dividers. Three, decent exit routes. Four, not too high traffic. The fifth requirement was it couldn't be a credit union or some local bank. My first objective is complete, crowd control. Now I need a teller, and I get a drawer open. I move over to the nearest teller window, and I lean over the counter. I tell the crouching bank teller, a blonde white woman in her late thirties, to stand up. She ignores me. I tap on the counter with my weapon, with the barrel, which is a procedural mistake on my part, and a good way to stovepipe around. I repeat the command, and the teller stays down. I reach over and gently tug on a lock of hair with a thumb and finger. I'm standing right here, stand up now, and open the drawer. She stands, and I'm stressing because the interaction is going too slow, and I'm losing time. She tells me she has to get the keys. I tell her to stop stalling and hurry up. My tone is aggressive. Bank tellers get very tired of robberies. I've heard of more than a few bank robberies where the robber presents the note, and the teller just walks away from the window in anger and disgust. I'm not proud of how I treated the bank teller. I'm sure that it was an extremely stressful day for her. If you have had someone point a loaded weapon at you and make demands, it feels really bad. I didn't get to armed solo bank robbery one day on a lark. For one thing, this wasn't my first armed robbery. Not that I had a long criminal career. You'll have to take my word for it, but no one was injured in my unrecorded priors. Part of radicalization for me occurred with a magazine subscription to Covert Action Quarterly. It's a scholarly journal, each footnoted article laid out the actual US foreign policy on the ground. I think I picked up my first copy as a teen at the hobby shop in Anchorage, Alaska in the 1980s, where I would buy Dungeons and Dragons modules. Reminder, this is way before the internet. Everything from politics to pornography was a journey to access. Reading Covert Action Quarterly, I learned about the School of the Americas, today now known as Winsec, where the US trains death squads, how to murder trade union leaders, journalists, leftists, priests, elected leaders, and farmers. I learned about our covert wars the world over, where the clear calculation was innumerable innumerable human lives are an acceptable cost to grease the skids of the neoliberal global hegemony. The democratically elected and popularly supported leaders like Arbenz in Guatemala, Mossadegh in Iran, Allende in Chile, and many others would be overthrown by the U.S. so that corporate profits could be protected. I saw that none of this was discussed in clear terms in our media, nor in our schools, and I understood that we are a heavily propagandized and insular culture in the United States, by design. In the bank, I pull the paper bag out of my pocket and I toss it on the counter. I'm trying to watch the teller, the people in the bank, and the bank entrances while running an internal clock. Put the money in the bag. No die packs, no mark bills. Hurry the fuck up, I say. The teller says she has to get the keys, slowly fumbles for keys, and unlocks the drawer. I'm already 30 seconds behind where I want to be, and my adrenaline is singing. Critically, the teller is not unlocking the regular drawer. It is instead on the side, and I will learn later it is actually a compartment for robberies. Unbeknownst to myself at the time, this drawer contains bait money in it with a concealed transmitter. The teller starts putting the bait money in the paper bag. In my plan, there's a pit stop on the way home to check for dye packs, or dump evidence, and or everything if necessary. To be clear, my plan had a lot of flaws. Among them, I didn't plan for a GPS tracker. I would learn later that some robbers would keep five-gallon buckets partly filled with water in a getaway vehicle and submerge cash until I could check it later, using the water to cut off any GPS tracking signal. I see that a bank customer is coming in the same entrance I came in, and as they start to enter the bank, I wave them off rather than try to control them this is something i planned for i don't have the people to spend time on controlling the movement of new elements from the parking lot i'm counting on newcomers figuring out that hey a person with a firearm is telling you to go away they see me wave a gun and gesture to leave and the new bank customer backs out quickly i assume they are calling the cops or just getting the fuck out of here either way i had assumed the cops were already on their way so it only matters if these randos misread the situation or try heroics I assess at this point whether I have time for more windows. I had hoped for two drawers, but knew the clock was the key, and I was at at or past two minutes. I told the teller to get back down to the floor. As another note, a lot of banks now have two sets of ballistic glass doors to enter the lobby. When a robbery occurs, the employees lock the outer set remotely. As soon as the robbers pass through the inside set to leave, this set is also locked remotely, sealing the robber in the bullet-resistant sally port until the cops arrive. Luckily for myself, the bank did not have the system. I get out the doors. There's nobody waiting for me in the parking lot. No cops. I holster my weapon and sprint across the parking lot, a paper bag of money clutched to my stomach, the other hand on the browning to make sure it doesn't flop out of the holster. I start running towards my stashed bicycle about a block away. I'm expecting the cops to be here within the next minute, and I'm still way too close to the bank. The next episode will be what happens after I flee the bank, and I will give you a hint. Things ramp up quickly. Hi, I'm Brian, the host of Sunder. In this podcast, I'll walk you through an armed bank robbery I committed in 1997 and the aftermath, so there's true crime, described in the first person. I'll also be discussing politics from the point of view of a volunteer labor organizer and socialist, so it is a political podcast. And lastly, I will talk about how to break free of the zero-sum paralysis of this life, how to take action and change this world in your community right now. You and I together will see if there's some room to move true crime voyeurs and podcast passivity into something else. There's a segment of the population here in the US that thinks there is something to return to in the past a return to quote unquote normalcy. But climate extinction is real and there is no return flight. Ships lie burned on the shore Welcome to the most exciting decade in your life. There's not a moment to lose. It's time to leave away from the old world that is never coming back and sunder those bonds that cause you suffering. Welcome to Sunder, your newest parasocial friend. Back here live at the Waterfront Village with my friend, the zombie, Jonathan. You're looking good. Jonathan just got an awesome face paint job. What do you think? I like turtles all right you're great zombie and good times here at the waterfront village open for the next 11 days part two houselessness in january of 2020 we heard about a friend of a friend who is now houseless and struggling our place is not big but we offered her a place to stay while she was waiting for a shelter space to open up which she thought at the time would be roughly 30 to 40 days She was number 11 on a wait list for safe transgender shelter and had passed her required tuberculosis test when the COVID pandemic kicked in. All the shelters locked down and froze intake as to not bring in infected. So we offered her a place to stay with us and moved her in fully with no idea how long the pandemic conditions would last. I want to be clear, we were far from the only family in Portland doing this, nor the first. I can think of three, just in my circles, who house the unhoused, in some cases entire families, because they see suffering and humanity and want to help. It wasn't easy for her to adjust, and stressful for us in the pandemic to add a person to our now cramped household. Over a half million people live on the streets of the United States. Of those, over 40,000 are military veterans, and many are children or homeless families. Housing has become extremely expensive and has now turned into a commodity to be traded and inflated on the stock market instead of a condition of existence. Housing as an issue carries with it discrimination and instability. Houses sit empty as investment properties or Airbnbs all over the city while folks live and die on the streets. Also, I'm going to say houselessness and homelessness interchangeably. I don't care which one people use and think it's a distraction when folks get exercised about it. I do think that it is important sometimes to remind folks that it it is, at the end of the day, about housing and access to housing. Houselessness evokes one of the strongest and most visceral emotional reactions from people. Fear, anger, helplessness. Houselessness teaches the general public you have no clear power to change conditions for the persons you encounter who are experiencing it. And as a society, we've clearly chosen to not adequately address houselessness. It's a warning under capitalism. This could be you. Houselessness is the deadening of spirit and further entrenchment of the idea that we are here to compete with each other and that there are, quote, deserving poor, people whose lot in life is to be swept aside, criminalized, or forgotten. We are taught to be mercenary in the opposite of solidarity. The majority of houseless folk are houseless for 90 to 150 days. There is a smaller percentage of chronically houseless people who stay on the streets. Portland, like many cities, has a visible houseless population that has increased heavily before and during the pandemic. The media is full of paid advertisements by dark money, packs demanding that shelters be built and the unhoused literally forced inside them. It is couched in the formula of caring about people when clearly it is about making the houseless population invisible again so businesses and property owners don't have to think about houseless folks, or see houselessness. Local news stories about people living in desperation on the streets almost always solely interview homeowners and business folks, but rarely ever any houseless or advocates. The issue of houselessness in news stories is not tied to medical bankruptcy, the increasingly high cost of housing, the 2008 housing bubble collapse that ate the savings and retirements of the working class, nor the economic depression of 2020 and 2021 instead of demanding a living wage in Portland or Oregon, instead of requiring and enforcing affordable and public housing. The narrative is that the most vulnerable and powerless are entirely to blame for their condition, which means it's okay to punch down and dismiss people in the hardest conditions. You know, like Jesus would do. The majority of arrests in Portland by the police that were made in 2018 and 2019, for example, were of unhoused people. That means more than half of all arrests in those years were from a pool of about 4,000 homeless in Portland. The state of Oregon decided to help out by investing a million dollars in anti-camping boulder fields. The reality is that Portland has been shrinking affordable housing for decades, and the majority of politicians are stooges for the Portland Business Alliance and large property developers. Again and again in Portland, developers would get tax breaks and pledge to build X number of low-income housing units. And then when they get to the end of construction, oops, you know what? We totally just forgot to build that low-income housing. Or they would get vouchers or setups for low-income housing units that would only last for 10, 20, or 30 years, and then revert to regular market housing, pushing people into the edge of precarity again. But all the messaging in the city is about how the problem is all these homeless people punching down at the people with the least resources. In the old days, Seattle police would give the chronically houseless an ultimatum, go to jail or take this one-way bus ticket to Portland. LGBTQ plus teens kicked out of their rural Oregon homes. Adults and teens fleeing abusive homes or domestic violence often end up in Portland. All the treatment and medical services are centered here, The VA hospital is here. Portland used to have a lot of single-residency occupancy, SROs, in downtown, but the developers saw dollar signs, and so those were converted and torn down, and mostly the affordable housing was not replaced, certainly not replaced in proportion to the overall population. The city could assertively tax empty housing and Airbnb locations to help fund housing for houseless people. It could, eminent domain properties being unused and house folks They could set rent controls. That would be more realistic, not the statewide ones right now that are going to increase by over 14.5% next year. They could massively increase wet housing. The county, the city, the state could fund apartments for the chronically unhoused. Wet housing is a term for housing without requirements that you can't be drug or alcohol dependent. It acknowledges that many people on the street have dependencies exacerbated by the condition of living rough, without regular sleep or safe conditions. It means, let's prioritize housing so you can sleep and rest and recover and then work on getting clean or managing your dependency. The county could require that the majority of housing built for the next 10 years be affordable housing simply by changing permitting requirements. But all that requires political will and fucking with the bags of money the landlord and developer class and owning class makes off of income inequality That means taxing the rich so that we don't have people living on the street. That means auditing affordable housing and requiring affordable housing be built with real consequences and and follow-up on developers who, quote-unquote, forget. As others have pointed out, there's a layer in the United States of bourgeoisie whose wealth is connected entirely to their house and the land under it, and the massive government subsidy paid out to mortgage holders who have a a vast vested interest in property values increasing every year. This is the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie that we live under that requires homelessness because building affordable housing threatens their wealth. City politics across the U.S. is heavily dominated by the developers and the neighborhood associations that are largely homeowner associations. As long as housing is a commodity... Capitalism and capitalists will create the conditions where your zip code determines your life expectancy and where houselessness is the logical result of the system of rampant inequality, where most wages haven't kept up with the massive rent increases. A living wage in Portland is around $24 an hour. Meanwhile, we can't even get a $15 minimum wage federally, a wage no one can actually live on anymore. This is not by accident. This is the class war waged every hour of every day on the working class. We live in a land trust house in, a, in part of a program in Portland. A land trust owns the land and you own the mortgage on the house on the land. This significantly reduces home buyer costs, which means you get a stable, affordable mortgage on a house you can live in for the rest of your life if you choose and pass it on to your heirs. It's made a massive difference in our lives and the lives of many others in Portland. It's a good start. I strongly believe the land trust program should be expanded, but even more is possible. I'm grateful for the efforts of activists and advocates to get Portland Street Response going as an incredibly successful program that brings out a team trained in mental health issues, rather than the police. But long-term, affordable housing and supplying dignified housing for the chronically unhoused, not mass shelters where they're forced inside, is the solution. De-commodifying housing, rent controls, and a living wage would also be ideal solutions. Take houselessness off the plate of the police who really aren't thrilled to to be not only the assigned cleanup crew for a societal issue that we refuse to address adequately on any level, but also not given the tools nor training to address the crisis. Our new housemate stayed with us for a little more than a year, She was kind to our teen son and helped the household in areas where she had skill, fixing a sensor on the washing machine, making an amazing gumbo, helping choose and set up an internet router. When the stimulus checks came through, she bought a used van and converted it, adding solar panels, a bed, storage, and other basics. We're still on good terms, though we worry about the precarity of her existence. She's still living in her van without any source of income. I'm glad we were able to share housing and I'm thankful there are people in the world who want to help each other. I support mutual aid in crises. But I also know the capitalist system we're living under is not threatened in any way by individuals taking on housing the houseless. In fact, the owner class would love to offload every crisis onto the back of the individual and keep you busy not looking at the system that creates the crises. Helder Kamara. Camar- a Brazilian Catholic Archbishop, said it well, quote, When I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. I want everyone in my community to have access to housing, decommodified affordable housing, and access to good jobs with a living wage and education and health care. I want this because a post-scarcity world is entirely possible. I want this because I don't want my neighbors to be desperate and living on a razor's edge. I want good lives for you and yours. It starts with practicing class solidarity and actively rebelling against the pressure to see your fellow workers as competition and barriers. It means learning to punch up, structure, and back. Men
1: that are fighting for freedom every day, every day, we never let up. It is in my blood. I will always stand for the cause of black liberation. No doubt. But I stand for truth also. I stand for humanity first. The deepest part to being black is being African. Deepest part to being African is being human. Deepest part to being human is God. Deepest part of being God is being love, being intelligence and all of the above, understanding, mercy, uh, all that. It's God-like. What would you rather be, black or God? (laughs) Who are you really, African-American or human? I tend to lean toward human myself. And so hip-hop as a movement is colored with this as well. Not all of hip-hop agrees with KRS-One, and they shouldn't. Hip-hop should be challenging everything that anybody is saying out there about. Truth will hold up. And that's all I speak is truth. Section
0: 3. Amazon Salting. In May of 2020, I salted into an Amazon Fulfillment Center. Salt is a labor term for taking a job with the intention to organize co-workers in the workplace. While I was at Amazon, I worked as a lead water spider. The sound you're going to hear right now in the background is what it sounds like when you're working as a water spider, using pallet jacks, moving totes and boxes and pallets of material. Using a pallet jack. The Fulfillment Center, or FC, where I worked, is four stories and nearly a million square feet. 40 football fields of space inside, it takes nearly 10 minutes to walk from one corner to the opposite corner. Roughly 5,000 workers are attached to the site, working a base 10 hour day shift or night shift. While I was at Amazon, we had four and a half months of mandatory overtime and I often worked five 11-hour night shifts in a week. My first bakery job I ever worked was 12-hour night shifts with a 20-minute break in the middle. And I've worked as a janitor, dishwasher, line cook. I've worked in prison kitchens and prison furniture factories where the boss is literally a prison guard. I've worked most of my adult life on my feet. Amazon was the most dehumanizing job I've ever worked in my life. This is the second largest employer in the United States, and Amazon is rapidly, purposefully degrading working conditions while injuring workers at a massive rate in the logistics industry. Workers are routinely competing for hand scanners, for radios, for pallet jacks, and for materials in a system Amazon built to intentionally erode trust between workers and the ability to work together. High turnover makes workers habitually undertrained in routines and systems that would reduce injuries, the CEO of Amazon recently blamed the high injury rate on, quote, new workers, unquote, blaming the victims of Amazon's intentionally high turnover, churn system, that explicitly sets workers as the disposable input. Amazon's 150% turnover rates aren't an accident. Amazon bosses designed it that way. Labor wasn't great in the 1980s and 1990s, but I remember working a 40 hour week restaurant job and being able to support myself on that income. I remember all the years the expectation that overtime was something an employer could ask for but never demand. A regular and consistent schedule so you could have a life outside of work was the norm. Even those base expectations are now eroded by capitalism's endless need to exploit workers more and squeeze more profit. 12 hour day and night megacycles don't benefit human physiology. There are numerous studies showing a cognitive fall off after eight hours and after 10 hours a shortened lifespan from swing and night shift work. The state of Washington now classifies working at Amazon as more dangerous than mechanized logging or law enforcement, and Amazon is required to pay a 15% higher worker comp rate or insurance there because they injure so many fucking people. When I worked at the Amazon FC, it was not uncommon to have a two-ambulance shift, meaning twice in one night workers were sent to the hospital with injuries. Alarm bells in my head go off when I see 19-year-olds come into to work at Amazon as their first job and they think, this is, what it, this is what work looks like. Alienating, degrading, high-risk gig jobs with no realistic path for advancement, no control over your schedule, mandatory overtime, and a boss who wants you gone after three years. That's shitty work. This section of the podcast, I focus on actions one can take to change your conditions, and salting... Taking a job, in part, for the purpose of organizing with your co-workers to change conditions together. That's an action that I respect and endorse highly. Anyone can resign from a job, can move on. Staying and building connections and power is a commitment that is transformative in your life. Your change of intention changes your world. To be a salt requires an ideological commitment to improving conditions for the working class a willingness to build lasting and real social relationships with coworkers, sincere love for people, and a respected work ethic. To be a SALT requires an ability to maintain operational security, an initial commitment of one or two years in a campaign, and a demonstrated understanding of the challenges and rewards. You don't have to have labor organizing skills coming into the position. You will be fully trained and supported in most SALTing programs. The reason salting is used in labor campaigns is that changing workplace conditions requires a minimum level of workers who know through experience that change is possible. The majority of people have never experienced workplace democracy, let alone agency as a worker. Salts by being on the inside and a part of the workplace can influence workplace culture and build the unbreakable solidarity required to win a labor campaign. A number of labor organizations that use salting programs have high campaign win rates that help workers access the power they always had to take on the boss and win. The reason I became a labor salt and salted into Amazon in 2020 was because I yearned for a concrete action I could take to improve conditions and build a working class power. I had supported workers organizing but never organized my own workplace. The people I met in the labor movement were the most serious and grounded and skilled were always salts and I wanted to be like them. Salting allowed me to directly organize with my coworkers in a supported structure where I could learn and improve my organizing skills. Salting gave me a mission larger than myself and a better reason to hold a job than just a paycheck. And salting taught me how to build power with my siblings in the multiracial working class without illusions. I also chose to salt because I'm a socialist and I'm convinced Our role as socialists is to do the hard things, the principled things, as we fight for our collective liberation. In the interview with Angelica Maldonado, the 27-year-old chair of Amazon Labor Union's Workers' Committee, she was very clear what it took to organize with her co-workers. Angelica was at the warehouse on her days off, was there before and after her shifts, talking to workers on breaks, on her lunch, doing home visits. This mother raising a child fought like hell to take on a trillion dollar multinational and won because she and many others methodically built unbreakable solidarity with their co-workers. They didn't do it all in one day, and they didn't do it as a massive second job, but more as a little bit every day. Ask yourself, what do you think it will take to defeat capitalism? What are you willing to commit, to expend, to change this world? We have a short window of time to organize the working class into a cohesive force. In an interview with members of the Amazon Labor Union, one of the organizers, it was noted, was an Italian-American man, a Trump supporter, who had talked to hundreds of workers at Staten Island and secured their votes in favor of the union. One of the organizers who brought in hundreds was from the Communist Party. One of the organizers was a multilingual immigrant who helped build connections between folks in immigrant communities all of whom are workers fighting for better conditions against the boss. Amazon Labor Union won because they organized workers and found common cause. Salting is direct engagement in the battle to liberate the multiracial working class, not by preaching from above or from outside, not by theorizing or postulating, but by being on the job and changing conditions by building unbreakable solidarity together. Contact your local DSA labor working group and join the rank-and-file struggle. All right, you made it all the way through episode two. Next episode gets right to it and shit gets real. Subscribe and catch the whole tale. Turns out there's more to the story of bank robbery and politics and taking action in a troubled world. Please rate and review the podcast. This will help more people listen and know this podcast exists. I'm an organizer, and I'm purposely not on social media. Not on Twitter, Instagram, Meta, or Facebook, or whatever it's called. I'm not a clout chaser, and I'm not on the influencer path. I work in meat space mostly, so I rely on your rating and reviewing and spreading the word through your social circles to amplify the reach of Sunder. Sunder is written, edited, and produced by Brian Denning. You can contact Sunder at podcastsunder at gmail.com. Support the work being done here by subscribing on Patreon. Even better, become a dues-paying, participatory member of your local DSA chapter. You and your co-workers, neighbors, family, and friends have this decade to change course and build a survivable path in a post-scarcity world. Commit to the mission and build your skills. Good hunting.